You can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, that's okay. We've provided some under the chairs. Those have been placed there for you. You can open up that Bible and turn to page 884. 884, and that's where you'll find Luke chapter 24. Well, some suggest that you should set your expectations low so that you're not disappointed. So, for example, don't expect a pay raise, and when you don't get one, you won't be disappointed because you didn't expect it to happen. Ladies, don't expect the flowers from your husband. Because when he comes home and he doesn't have them, well, you won't be disappointed, right? Oh, there's some strong laughs over there. I'm just here to help you, you know. How about this one, kids? Don't expect Disneyland to be the happiest place on earth. Because when you show up and find out that it is not, you won't be disappointed. The parents say, amen. Well, the idea is, you get it, set your expectations low and you'll never be disappointed. You know, every day we deal with unmet expectations. We expect something to go a certain way. We expect the relationship to go a certain way. And and then our expectations are not met. And that leaves us frustrated, disappointed, And maybe that's the case for you even today. Things in your life are not going as you would have expected them to. And it's left you disappointed, sad, maybe even depressed. We all deal with unmet expectations. And and the reason that we deal with unmet expectations is that our expectations are set on other people. Or our expectations are set on circumstances that are outside of our control. And so, of course, when circumstances go wrong or when people fail you, well, then that leaves you disappointed, discouraged, sad, and even depressed. Here's what I'd like you to to encourage you with this morning. I, I would like to encourage you to set your expectations on God's Word, His promises being fulfilled. Because if your expectations are set in God's Word, that is, that He will fulfill His promises, let me promise you something, you'll never be disappointed. You'll never be discouraged, you'll never be frustrated, because God's Word is sure. God's Word is sure. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is just another proof of that reality. That's what Luke chapter 24 emphasizes and shows us. God's word is sure. Set your hope in God's word. It won't fail. Trust God's word. It's trustworthy. Believe God's word. And it will hold you in the darkest times in your life. It will hold you when everyone else fails, or when circumstances aren't going your way, 
God's word is sure. You can bank on it. You can hold on to it. His promises will be fulfilled. So we're looking at Luke chapter 24 this morning. We're going to do a lot of reading. We're going to kind of broadly cover the whole chapter. And I just want to highlight three times in this chapter where the Word of God is emphasized. And the fact that you can depend on it, that it is sure, is emphasized in these three post-resurrection accounts. Okay, So three points in your outline. Three times that the Word of God is emphasized as sure, trustworthy. You have first, the women in the Word. Second, two men in the Word. And third, disciples in the Word. Those are the fill in the blanks for your outline. Let's look at the first account. The women and the Word. Like I said, we're going to read through this account and we'll, we'll go through it kind of quickly and stop where we see the emphasis. Why don't we back up a little bit to chapter 23. I just want you to notice in verse 50 that Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, he asks for the body of Jesus in verse 52. This man went to Pilate after Jesus had died and he asked for the dead body so that he can bury it in his tomb. And so then he took it down from the cross, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him, the dead body, in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. And it was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. Preparation being Friday. The Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, is Saturday. So this happened on Friday. Jesus died on Friday. Now, notice verse 55, the women... The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. So they watched the body go into the tomb. They watched the body laid in the tomb. And then Mark tells us they watched the stone roll over the tomb. Everybody agrees at this point, this is a dead man buried in a tomb. Body is emphasized over and over again. Now they returned after they saw the body buried, and they prepared spices and ointments, verse 56. That was Friday night. And then on the Sabbath, Saturday, they rested according to the commandment. They're following the law. Now look at chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, what day is this? Sunday, Friday, first day. Sabbath, Saturday, second day. First day of the week, Sunday, Third day. On the first day of the week, Sunday, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They had prepared these spices to anoint their king. And they found the the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find what? The body. Uh Uh-oh. No body. Where did this body go? It leaves them perplexed. Verse 4 tells us. What happened to the body? We saw him die. We saw him buried, laid there. We saw the stone rolled over the tomb. 
Something's happened because it's gone. Now, Mary Magdalene's theory is that someone else took the body. Body thief. Stealing the dead body of the Lord. Maybe the others thought the same thing. One thing we know from the passage here is that they're perplexed. They're concerned. They're confused as to what's going on here. One thing's for sure. What happened, they did not expect. They did not expect. While they were there perplexed, look at verse 4, Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they, verse 5, the women were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? I love this question. It's kind of an indirect question, isn't it? Shouldn't you be looking for someone that's alive? And if so, why are you in a grave? See, the the angels, we know these men to be angels, they're asking this question to expose these women, their meager expectations. They expected to see a dead man, and they shouldn't have expected that. Why? They should be expecting an alive man, a man walking. Why? The angels tell them. Verse 6, He's not here, but has risen. He's risen indeed. Why should they have known this? Look in the middle of verse 6. Remember how He told you. Remember how He told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, what? Rise. You should have expected a man alive because Jesus told you that today he would be alive. What are the angels pointing these women back to? The Word. The Word of Jesus Christ, who is God. God's word is sure. You can bank on it. He told you to be alive, and so you should expect him alive today. Now, they point back to what Jesus told them in Galilee. This is recorded in Luke chapter 9, verse 22. Jesus said, and I quote, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day, be raised. Again, later in that same chapter, verse 44, Jesus says this, Let these words sink into your ears. There's a good one for you, parents. Let these words sink into your ears. Jesus says, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, Matthew continues his words, they'll kill him and he will be raised on the third day. Clear words have never been spoken. Jesus says exactly what's going to happen. And he is God, remember? And if he says this is how it's going to happen, then you should expect this is how it's going to happen. God's word is sure. Take him at his word. It never fails. No matter how extraordinary it may seem. So, we see these women 
reminded of Jesus' word and that it is sure. And that is where their expectations should have been set. Look at verse 8. They remembered the words. Oh, yeah. That's right. He did tell us that. And then what did they do? Verse 9. They returned from the tomb. They told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. The eleven disciples, now eleven because one had betrayed the Lord. You remember Judas? There were twelve. Judas betrayed the Lord. Now there's eleven. And the rest. There are other followers of Jesus gathered in this place. Now, look at verse 10. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Now, it is significant that the Lord chose women to be his messengers. This is incredible. This is really profound because, unfortunately, in this day, women were often diminished or devalued in society. In fact, a woman could not be treated as a reliable witness in a court during this time. Their words were questioned or suspect. Yet, the Lord Jesus chooses who? These women to be his first messengers of the resurrection. The first to be his resurrection witnesses. He chooses these women who, by the way, were the first to the tomb on the third day. Mary coming, as the text tells us, before dawn, while it was still dark. Just shows their devotion, their worship of the Lord. You know, anybody who claims that the Bible is misogynistic has not read the Bible. There is not an ancient text, there's not a book anywhere that gives more honor to women than the Word of God. It honors women, beholds them, loves them as image bearers. Values them. So anyways, the women tell the apostles everything. And look at how the apostles respond, the disciples at this time. Look at verse 11. These words seem to them an idle tale. A myth. Just like a legend. A fable. And they did not believe them. This is fascinating because even more than the women, these disciples had more encounters with Jesus and Jesus telling them exactly what would happen. These disciples were with him when Jesus said the sign of Jonah will come to these people, meaning three days in the belly of the fish, then he got out three days in the tomb and I will rise from the dead. In Luke chapter 18, he took the twelve aside and he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon. And after flogging him, they'll kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. This is what he tells his, to his twelve. And again, in the Last Supper, he tells his disciples, the Scriptures must be fulfilled. I'm going to be betrayed. I will be numbered among the transgressors. I will be treated as a criminal. He said, the shepherd must be struck. The sheep will scatter. But after that, I will be raised up and you'll see me in Galilee. He's telling them this before the events of the crucifixion. Yet, 
the message of these women that Jesus has risen seems to them an idle tale, a myth. How can that be? How could they be so blind to the truth of this claim? I like what Calvin, the famous theologian John Calvin, writes about these men in this verse. Forgive me, parents. He says this. If the women had related anything of which they had not formerly heard, then there would be reason for the disciples to not believe them. But now these men must have been uncommonly stupid in holding as a fable or a dream what had been so frequently promised and declared by the Son of God. They should have taken Jesus at His word and remembered His word. But they didn't. They didn't believe. Maybe at this point they say what a lot of your friends or neighbors have said. I've got to see it to believe it, right? I've got to see it to believe it. Maybe that's what they said at this point, And we'll see if that really happens at the end of this account. But the question is, do you, do you hold the events or the stories in God's word as fairy tales and myths? Do you believe them just to be legends? Or are you here today taking God at His word? Do you trust this book? Do you believe that everything that God said would happen will happen or did happen just as His word said it would? His word is sure. You can bank on it. You can trust it. Elizabeth, another woman, says this to Mary. Such a powerful and great statement. She says this, Blessed, happy, thriving is she who believes that God will fulfill what He has spoken. Blessed are you here today if you believe that what God has said or that God will fulfill what He has spoken. Do you believe? Second scene. Two men in the Word. We're moving through this chapter. Now the scene changes by the way, just before this, you're thinking, wait a minute, Morgan, you skipped verse 12. Peter. After the women came and, and said these things to the group, Peter rose, and he's probably thinking, I've got to see it to believe it. He rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, I don't think at this point Peter believed. I think he's simply marveling. He's amazed. We have evidence later that he believed at a different point. But at this point, he's going, wow, something crazy's happening. But he's not yet believed in the resurrection of Jesus. And then the scene changes. Verse 13. That very day, two of them, two in this crowd, two outer disciples, if you will, of Jesus. They're not the inner 11 or the, litter, the inner 11, but they're uh, part of the crowds of those who are following him. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. 
while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. They didn't recognize him. Look at verse 17. He said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered him. So then we got one name, but not the name of the other guy. It's interesting, some commentators suspect that it might be Luke. That's just a theory. It's just a guess, because Luke, the author of this gospel, knew such specifics about this account. But we don't know the name of the other guy. We know one of them's named Cleopas. He answered him, so, so Jesus comes up and goes, what's this conversation that you're having together as you're walking? Look at what Cleopas says. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? In other words, do you live under a rock? And he said to them, Jesus, what things? You'll play along. They said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, of course. A man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. How our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. They are almost reciting verbatim what Jesus told them would happen. Isn't that amazing? Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they didn't find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. Huh. Jesus of Nazareth, a mighty prophet who said all of these words and actually was delivered over to the chief priests, who actually was delivered unto death. Oh, and by the way, it's the, third, it's the third day and there's an empty tomb? Does it ring a bell, men? Not for them. And then Jesus finally responds, Oh, foolish ones. Listen, you may think I live under a rock, but you too have rocks between your ears. If you don't understand what you're saying right now. Oh, foolish ones. He starts with a rebuke. And then he says, he calls him foolish. Why? They're slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. They're not believing God's word. He says in verse 26, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. In other words, shouldn't you expect what the prophet said would happen to happen? Isn't that what you should be expecting? Because the prophets speak on God's behalf. These are God's words that you know. Isn't God's word sure? Doesn't he fulfill everything that he says he will fulfill? And then look at what Jesus does. Beginning with Moses. 
Moses, by the, by the way, is the author of the Pentateuch, the first five books of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So beginning with the very beginning of the book, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's beginning to the end of the Old Testament. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, a prophet. The majority of the last books in the Old Testament are the minor prophets. So from Genesis to Malachi, Jesus does what? He interprets to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. He gives them a tour of the Old Testament. By the way, this is before people were walking around with ease. So how is Jesus communicating the prophets and the words of Moses to them? From memory. He's reciting it out loud. Now we don't know exactly what text Jesus went to, but we know it was comprehensive from beginning to end. Maybe he went all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and showed how the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Maybe he went to Genesis 12 and showed how the seed, the offspring of Abraham, would come to bless all the nations. Maybe he went to 2 Samuel 7 and showed how the seed or the offspring of David has presented himself as the true king. Maybe Isaiah 53 to point out, hey, by the way, you should have expected this king to suffer because the prophet said that this suffering servant would suffer for the sake of the sins of the people. But you should have expected resurrection too because in Psalm 16, it's very clear God would not leave His Holy One subject to death. He would ascend to the right hand of God until He should make all His enemies His footstool. Psalm 110. And then surely He's going to return in glory to establish His throne in Jerusalem and rule among the nations. Zechariah 14. Maybe these are some texts that Jesus went to. He's drawing out and pointing them, showing them His credentials. The things that prove that He truly is the Messiah or that the Christ is the Messiah. He's still withholding from them at this point who He is. But he's showing them that Jesus, the one who suffered and died, is the Messiah that the Old Testament points forward to. Look at his credentials. You know what's interesting? Whenever you fly on an airplane, whenever you sit in an Uber or a cab, isn't it interesting that you're placing your life in the hands of a stranger who you assume has all the credentials and the experience to be trusted with your life, but you've never met him before. His degrees aren't posted on the airplane. You just assume, this guy's got to meet the credentials. He's in the pilot's chair. I trust him with my life. Isn't that incredible that we'll trust men assuming that their credentials meet the requirements and that they have the experience to be trusted with our lives. And Jesus here lays out his credentials for these two men in the Old Testament. He shows them how Jesus is the fulfillment of all these promises. He is the Messiah that has come to save sinners. And so shouldn't we trust God's word with our lives? Shouldn't we bank on his promises with all that we have? knowing that His Word is sure and that He will accomplish everything He said He would.
And so, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He showed them that Jesus is indeed the Christ, that it was necessary he suffer, and that he would rise again, and that he would ascend into glory. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. Now, why Jesus chose to open their eyes in that moment, I don't know. Maybe it was the familiarity of Jesus breaking bread amongst the disciples on a variety of occasions. They saw him and finally got it. But the blind won't gain their sight until he opens their eyes. But notice what they say. They turn to each other after he vanished. Look at verse 32. Did not our hearts burn within us? When? While he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. God, Jesus, uses his word to open their eyes and the minds, their heart. Joshua said in Joshua 21.45, not one word, not one, of all the good promises that God has made have failed All came to pass. Do you believe it? The resurrection proves it. Third scene, third account, the disciples in the Word. They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, verse 33. And they found the eleven again. Those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. So at some point, Jesus, Peter goes in, sees the tomb empty, and he marvels, right? At some point, Jesus has appeared to him, and they were made aware of that before these two disciples get back to this gathering. So the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what happened to them on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. And look at this. As they're talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace to you. They're startled, <gasps> frightened, thought they saw a spirit. They still don't get it. They're still in unbelief. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Again, why are your expectations not that it's me? I'm alive. Just as I said I would be. Look at what he says. Verse 39. See my hands and my feet. That is me. I, myself. Touch me. And see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Here's the body you've been looking for. Ta-da! Although it has been transformed and made new, it was not unfamiliar. It was not unhuman. Jesus didn't look like an alien. He looked like a human. And look at verse 40. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet 
And verse 41 is unbelievable. And while they still disbelieved for joy, but, or and, were marveling. Jesus is standing in front of them. They've touched him. They hear him speak. They're going to watch him eat. Yet what they marvel but do not believe. I've got to see it to believe it, they say. No, you don't. No, you won't. Even when you see him, you still won't believe him. You know, the dead man in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the dead rich man tells Abraham, send Lazarus to my family. He's in Hades. He's in torment. And he sees Lazarus Lazarus in Abraham's bosom representing heaven. And he says, send Lazarus to my family. Warn them about the realities of hell. Abraham says what? They've got Moses and the prophets. They've got God's word. And then the rich man says, no, no, no. But if they see someone rise from the dead, then they might believe. And Abraham says this. If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, in other words, if they don't believe God's word, even if they see a dead man alive, they still won't believe. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. We all, like blind men and women, cannot find our own way, cannot open our eyes to see Him and behold Him. He must open our eyes. He must show and reveal Himself. And if that hasn't happened for you, I I encourage you today to cry out to God and ask for Him to open your eyes that you may see Him for who He really is. And know Him. And worship Him. And be forgiven of your sins. Having a right view of God. Don't assume that you, if you see it, you'll believe it. That's not true. Not necessarily the case. Just like the women, just like the two men, these disciples need Him to open their eyes. To illuminate the truth. And what is Jesus' tool of choice? What do you open cans with? can opener. What do you open wine bottles with? A wine key. How do you open the hearts of men and women? How do you open their eyes to see God for who He truly is? What tool do you use? Jesus uses it here. Look at verse 44. Then He said to them, These are My words that I've spoken to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds. For what? To understand the Scriptures. Here's his tool. The Word of God. To open the minds and the hearts of men. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to pierce the heart to discern the mind, to show you who you really are. It's living and active. God uses His words to His gospel in His word to change the hearts of men. Do you trust it? Do you know it? Again, this is before the time Jesus was not carrying a leather-bound copy of the Scriptures with Him. 
Maybe there was a scroll in the room. I don't know. Likely, Jesus recited the Scriptures from heart, from memory, like a disciplined and diligent rabbi who knows God's Word front and back. He could recite it. Because he had spent his childhood, by the way, sitting under it in the synagogue. I don't believe that Jesus used any, you know, tip, any special tricks or magic to know God's Word. I believe that he grew up in every way, just like every man, that, man does. And he submitted under the Word, listened to the Word preached, digested it, recited it, and then eventually memorized and learned it, just like we would. In all ways, he submitted himself to the form of man, even man in its limitations, yet without sin, and grew up in all ways just as we do. Jesus doesn't show them a handstand. He doesn't show another sign or a miracle. He doesn't do a backflip in front of them. He takes his Bible, he opens it up, says, here, here I am, here I am, here I am, here I am, here I am. He knows the Word. And by the way, the same Bible that Jesus opened up and went through and pointed to himself is the same Bible that's opened in front of you this morning. It's the same Word of God. The Law of Moses, the Psalms, the, the uh, prophets, and now even today you have the blessing, the benefit of the New Testament canon, Matthew to Revelation, that reveals Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection and ascension, and shows you how you ought to function in the church. And yet, how often does this book sit closed on your nightstand? You've got multiple copies of these throughout your house that are just untouched. How precious is this word? How important is it that Jesus gave His life and showed His disciples His life through it? Shouldn't you know it? Shouldn't you give yourself to this book? Know it from Moses to Malachi, from Matthew to Revelation? We ought to give ourselves, our lives to this book, trusting every word because it's sure. If God's word says it will happen, it will happen. And so, instead of placing our expectations in people or circumstances, set your hope and your belief in God's word. Trust this. In your darkest and your deepest valleys, this word will hold you and keep you and strengthen you. Because in it, it reveals Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, rose again from the dead, and has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is King and He's coming back for His people. Because God's Word said it would happen. It happened and those things will, His future return will happen. We can bank on it. So Jesus then says in 46 to 48 here, he says, thus it is written, it has been written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So three things Jesus says that the scriptures foretold. First, that the Christ would suffer. Where do we see that in the Old Testament? We've got a couple passages here that allude to his suffering. First and foremost is Isaiah 53. It's probably the most explicit passage talking about the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, 
You also have illusions of the suffering, the righteous, the righteous, excuse me, servant suffering in Psalm 22, in Psalm 31, in Psalm 69, in Psalm 118. They should have expected a suffering servant. Now, number two, the second thing is that the Christ would be raised from the dead. Where do we see that in the Old Testament? A big one is Psalm 16. Psalm 16. David says, you're not going to let me see corruption or you're not going to let me die and you're definitely not going to let your Holy One, he's talking about another, see the corruption of Sheol. Now what's Sheol? Sheol is the holding place after death. It's the afterlife. So death will not hold the Holy One. It cannot hold Him. He will be raised from the dead. And then Psalm 110 even goes further that they should expect that the Messiah would ascend to the right hand of God because the Scriptures say that. He will sit at my right hand until I make His enemies His footstool. So again, should have expected resurrection and ascension. Jesus even points back to the story of Jonah as an illustration of His resurrection. Then finally, the proclamation of the gospel to the nations. Where did they write about this in the Old Testament? Well, Genesis 12.3. The offspring from Abraham would bless the nations. Isaiah 42.6. The Christ would be a light for the nations. Isaiah 49.6. My salvation will reach the ends of the earth. They should have always expected that this gospel would not just go to ethnic Jews but it would go to all ethnicities, all races or cultures and languages and of different geographies. It's going out everywhere. The good news, God's salvation reaches the ends of the earth because His Word said it would. And His Word is sure. Do you believe it? Let's start with, do you know it? Do you know God's Word? well enough to believe it? Maybe you've heard the stories in Sunday school. Maybe you've heard word of mouth. Jesus died, He rose again, and He's ascended to the right hand of God. But do you know in the Scriptures where those truths are told? If not, I want to encourage you to dig. Because again, the same Bible that Jesus recited from memory is that same open book that's on your lap. You ought to know this book, read this book, cherish this book, study this book, know the promises in this book so that you can set your expectations here. And again, if your expectations are set in God's promises, you'll not be disappointed. Never be disappointed. Let's go back to your life. Let's go back to you and your unmet expectations. How can you know what the future holds for you and your family? How can you be sure that everything's going to be okay for you and your family? How can you be sure and know that when your death comes, after death, you will be right, you will stand right before God and be received into heaven, not sent into hell? How can you know that? 
It's all here in this book. It's all here in this book. The way that you can know that is by faith. By faith. Place your trust, not in other people, not in circumstances to go your way. Place your trust in Jesus Christ alone. Today, trust Him with your life, with your heart. Turn from sin, turn from a a wicked lifestyle, that, that life that you know you need to leave behind because it's wrong and you've disobeyed God and you've forsaken God. Entrust yourself to Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life you could not live. He died as a sacrifice in your place on the cross. And He didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead declaring victory over Satan and death. And He ascended to the right hand of God. And He is coming back. Place your faith, your trust in Him. In Him alone for salvation. And you can do that today. And know, have the assurance that after death, you will receive life. And you will be made right with God. Because His Word says so. I want to leave you, I want to point you to a very simple passage in Scripture that I want you, for those of you who don't know Christ, to receive today. It's Romans 10. 8 and 9. What does it say? The Word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the Word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's for you today. If you will believe, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. When Jesus appeared to the disciples and Thomas touched Him. See, Thomas said, I've got to see it to believe it. And he touched the Lord. Jesus said to him this, Have you believed because you've seen Me? Blessed are those who have not seen, yet they believe. If you believe today based on the promises of God's Word, Blessed are you. Maybe you haven't seen the resurrection of Christ. He's not going to appear to you right now, but you believe and trust in His Word. Jesus says you're blessed. You're blessed. He's opened your eyes to believe wonderful things. Isaiah 55, 10-11. For the rest of us, those who do have faith, those who do believe, those who do know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, hold fast to the Word of God. Place your trust here. Put your expectations in this book. Isaiah 55.10 says this, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but they water the earth, they make it bring forth and sprout, they give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the very thing that I sent it. Trust in God's word today. His word is sure. Let me pray. Father, oh, we are great beneficiaries of an incredible deposit 
an incredible book. God, it's amazing to think that this book that we hold in our hands, the Bible, was at one time not easily accessible. At one time, people had to walk to the synagogue to hear this word taught. They had to wait and listen for prophets to speak, to know, God, what word you had for them. Thank you, God, that we can open this book every day. We can open it every hour, on the hour. We can have it in our pockets, on our apps, and even on note cards, in our on our steering wheels. God, we can be surrounded with Your Word. Yet, God, help us to not be apathetic toward it. Help us to not take that for granted. Help us to know Your Word, to read it, to love it, to study and depend on it. And know that Your Word is sure. Thank You that Jesus is risen from the dead and He has given us a sure hope because of that resurrection. I pray that every individual in this room would believe in Christ today for salvation and be born again and raised to new life in Him. In Jesus' name, amen.